Hello and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. We have been following the ancient history of the Greeks and the Trojans for over a week now uh, since we have finished reading Homer himself. Um, and we've been able to track a lot of what's going on here. We have followed especially the Greek civilization through the Cycladic, the Minoan, and the Mycenaean period into the Greek Dark Age and on into the Archaic period when Homer himself was likely writing. So the time has finally come for us to move forward, past Homer in time, and to start looking instead of what was Homer's time and place, at what is Homer's reception, his legacy. Um, what does Homer look like in the generations after Homer, in short? Um, and we got into that quite a bit in our discussion of the Archaic period, but the trick with the Archaic period is that there isn't a whole heck of a lot of archaeological evidence to show us what was going on at that time. Um, we spent a lot of time in both our discussion of Troy and the Anatolian world and the Hittites and all that, as well as our discussion of the Greeks, the Achaeans, um, all the way into the Archaic period, we spent a lot of time speculating about what Homer got right and what Homer got wrong. What does that actually say about Homer as a poet? Um, is he in fact working from an epic tradition? And if so, why doesn't that epic tradition know about, say, the Hittites, for example? And if he's not working from an epic tradition, then where is he getting all this information that does correspond to what's going on in the uh, Bronze Age? Um, but now we're moving forward. Um, the fact of the matter is, as I've kept stressing throughout this lecture series since the very beginning, Homer is really important in the way that history works. Um, a lot of discussion of Homer, both in his own time and afterwards, has led to some major historical changes and events, and now it's time to start looking at that. I've emphasized over and over again that on the one hand, we are kind of trying to use Homer to understand the archaeological world that he lived in, and there's only a limited amount of evidence that we can get from Homer, because Homer might be taking some pretty serious liberties with the reality of his own time, as well as the reality of the Bronze Age he's supposedly writing about. Now, we actually don't have as much of a problem. Um, one of the things that you will notice about the difference between working from, like, ancient, ancient Greek history, the Cycladics, the Minoans, and the Mycenaeans, and even the Archaic and Dark Ages, um, as compared to studying the Classical period, our little 175 years here, according to our, our uh, timeline, is that it's way easier, because there's so much more record here. Um, the classical Greek period is called that because this is where the creation of Greek classics started to happen. Um, I have frequently referred to this as the Greek Golden Age. Um, because it is this robust world of civilization, culture, art, literature, much of which has survived to the present day. Um, we've emphasized throughout our earlier discussions that frequently there's very little writing to sort of examine for an understanding of the Greek world. Only those little bits of linear A and B writing gives us insight into what's going on in the Greek world. The rest we have to glean from, you know, pots and burial sites and discarded weapons and ring seals and arch architecture and things of that nature. We're not going to have that problem today. Uh, or going forward for that matter. Once we hit the classical Greek period, you will find there is an abundance of evidence. Um, we're still going to be missing a lot, and we'll talk about that as we get into some of the different writers and some of their various legacies, um, but we should definitely emphasize we have a much, much clearer picture 
of what the classical Greek world looks like and what the world going forward is going to look like simply because they wrote things down. They were preserved by other historians, either at, in their own time or later on down the road. And their stuff lasted because it was made better. There, were, there was more of it. It was a relatively stable period in history, especially compared to everything else that's been going on. Um, so today we're talking about the classical period, and we're also going to talk about the Hellenistic period a little bit, mostly because it's less important for us culturally and sort of less important for the reception of Homer, um, but also just because, you know, we do still have to mention it. Like, it, it absolutely is really important for the dissemination of Homer, even if it isn't terribly important to us uh, in particular. Um, and this is what's going to characterize the rest of the class going forward. Once again, we are kind of turning a corner here. Um, after spending seven weeks doing nothing but reading Homer, it's probably coming as a bit of a shock that we're trying to cover all of the history in one week and now we're moving forward. Um, but nonetheless, sort of the aim here is that we want to look at Homer over the ages, to talk about the way that he was received, to talk about the way that he was interpreted, to talk about the various different people who have weighed in on the legacy of Homer and colored it for future generations. Because Homer doesn't just mean one thing. Much as I would frequently talk about this text, you know, as though there was clearly one meaning being sort of conveyed, that's very much my interpretation and informed by my time and my culture. Many other cultures have looked at Homer and come to very different conclusions, as we're going to see in this lecture and beyond. Um, but naturally, the culture that has the most claim and the most sort of adjacency to Homer is this classical Greek period. Um, their attitude towards Homer is one that we're going to take very, very seriously, and it is them who will ultimately decide that Homer is worth preserving. Um, they're the ones that are going to duplicate Homer over and over and over again against all of those other epic poems that may have been lost, as we talked about last time. The reason why we have the Iliad and the Odyssey in numerous copies practically complete with very little question about the text textual origins is because everyone considered this super important where they didn't consider the Little Iliad or the Aethiopis or the Telogony terribly important by contrast. So once again, we are in ancient Greece, but now we are in way more modern Greece. We are in classical Greece. We are in the Greek Golden Age. We are in the center of Greek culture and Greek world in its history. When people say ancient Greece, this is the period they usually are referring to, not so much the stuff we've talked about before, unless they're being very specific. Um, so with that in mind, let's look at our all-time favorite, very simplistic map. Once again, we're talking about Greece, so once again, we should definitely get our bearings here. Um, but this time, rather than sort of focusing on just the cities and the sort of discrepancies in time and space, this time I want to emphasize something fairly different, something very unique about this classical period, and something that probably informs your own understanding of ancient Greece and probably caused you to wonder why we hadn't talked about it in the past. Namely, we need to talk about not just the cities, but the city-states. Um, in the ancient, ancient Greek world, the stuff before the Bronze Age, uh, or rather during the Bronze Age, um, we had a lot to say about sort of Greek society and trying to figure out exactly what it's doing and how there is apparently some sort of centralization in the Achaean slash Mycenaean world, and if it was, that was probably happening at Mycenae itself. 
As time has progressed, though, that centralization has kind of been lost. You'll remember that in the Dark Age, there is in fact a lot of trade going on, but we don't have the same sort of organizational powers. Remember that writing has very much vanished for a long period of time here, and it's only going to be reintroduced by the Phoenicians when they start coming into the Mediterranean and interacting with the Greeks on their various trade routes. So all that is to say, we are living in a very differently organized world, and as it is differently organized, we're also going to have to contend with the fact that it is differently structured. Um, there are different ways of governing oneself when the world is not nearly as interconnected as it was back in the Bronze Age due to the writing and the other tools that they have at their disposal. Um, so the solution to this, and the solution that will kind of reign throughout the Greek classical world, is that each city very much sort of claims its local territory and turns it into its own state, what we would usually call a city-state. Um, so, for example, over here we have the city of Athens, and they control very much this entire territory, not just the city itself. Sparta has sort of con conquered and taken over and wheedled its way into being friends with Messenia and Argolis, in addition to sort of controlling the Laconian city-state. Um, additionally, you'll remember... We talked about it briefly. The Aeolian Greeks have also been on the move. Many Greek colonies, so to speak, exist throughout the Mediterranean at this point. Notably over here, Troy has now been colonized. This is Troy 8 and 9, you'll remember from our archaeological discussion. Um, the Aeolian Greeks have come in and have taken over the place, largely because they think they have taken over the space where Troy used to exist. Um, which, from what we can tell, they're not wrong. Additionally, Greeks have landed all the way over on the uh, Italian peninsula, especially around Sicily, and Greek colonies exist there as well. And all of these city-states exist quasi-independently. They do know of each other's existence, they're frequently bumping into each other, they're frequently going to war with each other, but nonetheless, they all act and sort of govern themselves independently of one another. There is no Mycenaean League like what Agamemnon seemed to have control of. Um, there's no indication that like there's one state that kind of runs all the rest of them. They all exist separately. Um, and it is this sort of loose confederation, this sort of cultural community that is actually separated in their government and bureaucracy that's going to cause some of the most interesting developments in the Greek world at this point in time. Um, but for our purposes, we should at least talk about the two major city-states that we're going to keep bumping into over the course of this lecture. Namely, we got to talk about Sparta, and we got to talk about Athens. Um, Mycenae is not nearly the sort of important force in the universe as it used to be back in the Bronze Age. For whatever reason, it is very much lost. Um, there are other major city-states that are major players at this point. Corinth is still a major player. Thebes is still a major player. But really, when it comes to the movers and shakers of the ancient Greek world here in the Greek Golden Age in this classical period, we're talking about Athens and we're talking about Sparta. So first, let's talk about Sparta. You are probably familiar with Sparta. It's gotten a whole lot of press in recent memory, which actually, when you think about it, is a little bit concerning for reasons that hopefully will become evident by the end of this lecture. Um, Sparta was, 
obviously very old, every bit as old as Athens, and arguably more celebrated than Athens in the Bronze Age. You'll remember that Menelaus gets pretty top billing in the Iliad. Um, Menelaus is the king of Sparta, whereas I couldn't even tell you who the king of Greece or king of Athens was who showed up to the big fight at the Iliad. Um, Athens seemed to be a way smaller player than Sparta was as far as the Bronze Age Greek world was concerned. Um, but Sparta now looks very, very different than it did then. Um, Sparta has sort of embraced its heritage as the, you know, city that where Menelaus, the beloved of Ares, came from. And now Sparta has very much turned itself into a military civilization by this point in time. Um, part of this is largely due to this guy, Lycurgus the Lawgiver, who may or may not have existed. He could be yet another one of our uh, Greek-like mythic figures who really does not have any basis in reality, but many sources point to Lycurgus as this like important figure in the development of Sparta, and especially Sparta in, the, in this classical period. Um, see, Lycurgus apparently got the rights to be the lawgiver in Sparta, and he had some pretty interesting and pretty radical ideas for how Sparta should govern itself. Um, specifically, Spart he suggested that Sparta should command itself with not one, but two different kings. One king would stay at home at all, the at all times, and one king would always be with the army in the field. The idea being that they would therefore never compete for power and never try and overthrow one another, and generally this seemed to work out. We don't seem to have a whole heck of a lot of reports of Spartan riots and problems as far as that's concerned. Spartan riots and problems come from a different direction. Lycurgus also laid out an elaborate series of laws to sort of keep Sparta fighting fit, so to speak. And through Lycurgus's guidance and Lycurgus's instruction, if in fact Lycurgus existed, Sparta became a serious military power in the ancient world, like perhaps the strongest military power in the ancient world, which is why your first association with the Spartans is probably, you know, the 300 at Thermopylae, who, you know, 300 Spartans against hundreds of thousands of Persians, and they managed to fight them off for multiple days while the Athenians prepared their fleet and evacuated the city, thus saving the Athenians and the Greeks. Hooray! Yes, it's complicated. So, on the one hand, the rules that made Sparta out to be this fighting fit military power were extremely rigorous and extremely restrictive. Um, young men and women were trained from basically age seven to become soldiers. They were boarded together in giant barracks. Um, they were sort of brought up by the state. Um, there was a absolutely merciless sort of boot camp for these kids then many of students didn't survive and that's letting alone the fact that sparta if they like saw that you had some sort of physical deformity or some sort of um, disability as a baby they would just literally chuck you off a cliff right on the spot like sparta was basically a eugenic state in addition to being a military power um, it is through these extremely rigorous, extremely, like, draconian rules that Sparta gets its reputation of being as powerful as it is and as military formidable as it is. But the cost is impressive. Um, the Spartans leave very little in the way of their own culture. Lycurgus himself specifically said that he didn't want the laws of Lycurgus to be passed down in writing. 
he thought that they should only be passed down orally because he didn't want them to calcify. He wanted the Spartans to be able to adapt them and change them as the needs of the time commanded. Um, so as a consequence, the Spartans aren't interested in making statues and they aren't interested in making elaborate artworks and they're not interested in writing all of their exploits down and they're not writing plays and they're not, write, not writing tragedy and they're not writing philosophy because they don't give a shit. Their entire universe is making a military force that is to basically shame every other military force in the Mediterranean and they're really good at that and nothing else. Which is why the bulk of the labor in Sparta and the surrounding countryside is done by a vast number of slaves known as the Helots. Um, the Helots are the ones who are doing all of the work in Sparta. And it is suggested that at the time of the Greek Golden Age, at the time of the Classical period we're talking about, the Helots outnumber Spartan citizens about seven to one. So there are seven slaves to every Spartan soldier, and every person who is a Spartan citizen is a Spartan soldier. Men and women included, Spartans did not care whether you were a man or a woman, and honestly, like, the women were trained just as rigorously as the men were. They were allowed to own land in ways that the men were, like, you name it, the Spartans did not give a crap. Um, which is something that you should keep in mind when we turn to Athens, because... The Athenians are horrible misogynists pretty consistently all of the time where the Spartans are actually surprisingly egalitarian on that front. But remember, the Spartans have all of these slaves. And they are brutal to these slaves. Um, slavery in the ancient world looked very different from slavery as we typically understand it. Like the North American slave trade is a very different animal than the ancient Greek slave trade. And in fact, a lot of slaves were treated really well in the ancient Greek world. Um, Athenian slaves and especially Greek slaves in the Roman world later after the classical period tended to be treated very well, could even make money, buy their own freedom, own land and stuff, get married, have a pretty decent life. Um, and there were a lot of worse possibilities for a young enterprising student than enslaving themselves to a rich Roman family in order to get their bread and be able to teach. Um, but in Sparta, that's the exception. The Helots were treated like shit regularly. Um, Spartan soldiers in training would frequently kill Helots just for fun, to keep them in line and to keep sort of fighting fit. Um, the Helots were regularly sort of terrified into doing their works by these purges that the Spartans would conduct basically whenever they felt like it was necessary. But on the flip side, because there are seven Helots to every one Spartan soldier, the Helots are regularly rebelling. Especially when the Helots are informed by all that Athenian nonsense about democracy and every person having a vote and all that fun stuff. So the Helots are frequently upset enough to riot and to present a real threat to the Spartan military. So as a consequence, as much as the Spartans do have the nastiest heavy infantry in the entire ancient world, their hoplites are totally unparalleled, and yeah, they can totally defend, you know, the, the pass at Thermopylae from a wide number of more lightly armored Persian soldiers, it doesn't change the fact that the Spartans generally don't go fighting very often. They need to keep their army close to home in case the Helots start making trouble. Um, so the Spartans instead kind of depend on their allies, on uh, the local city-states like Thebes, for example, to protect them in the case of an invasion. Um, and the Spartans are routinely grumpy with the Athenians for letting all of their ugly, disgusting culture get in the, 
get into Spartan circles and start informing all those lousy helots with these ideas of potentially freeing themselves. So let's talk about Athens. Athens is where we're going to be talking, or where we're going to spend most of our time talking about today. Um, so it's important to kind of get a sense of what they are doing. Again, if Spartan, if Sparta is the entirely like laser-focused military culture, Athens is the laser-focused culture culture. Um, Athens un, up against Sparta absolutely emphasizes individuality, individual expression. Um, it has a robust art and literature scene. It has a strong theatrical community, and the playwrights are frequently awarded like prizes the way that you know typically you only see at something like the Olympics or athletic contests or fighting or contests of fighting prowess. Um, Athens. It kind of becomes this also due to an important and, in this case, almost certainly historical statesman, namely Pericles. Um, Pericles is the Athenian statesman who kind of leads Athens during the Greco-Persian War, which we'll talk about in a moment, as well as like during the early classical period in the uh, 6th and 5th centuries uh, BC. Um, it's Pericles who orders a number of new public works and cultural uh, projects to be undertaken, especially the Acropolis depicted here. And this is, as you can see, a modern photograph. It's in way better shape than virtually any of the other crap we've been talking about thus far in this class. You know, it is a far cry from that poor temple to Apollo with its like three columns and, and like that was it. Um, the Acropolis is in really good shape because it was really well built at the time. Like it was an impressive feat of, mo of uh, contemporary Athenian engineering. And it was an enormous complex. Multiple temples along with the uh, theater, which you can see down at the bottom here. Um, like all of this was one big project by Pericles to sort of help make Athens the jewel of the ancient world. Um, he very deliberately intended for Athens to become a cultural civilization, for it to be beautiful instead of trashy and dirty, the way that it seemed to have been up until this point. Um, and notice all of these buildings at the Acropolis have sort of both social and religious value. Most of the buildings, especially the Parthenon, are very explicitly temples, religious buildings. But even the theater is dedicated to Dionysus. Um, theater for the Athenians is a religious activity, the same way that drinking contests were a religious activity. Um, so we should emphasize Pericles is kind of the guy who at least is given responsibility by the historians of the time for this kind of Athenian renaissance. Um, if you can call it renaissance when it's the first time your city is really coming into its own. Um, now notice if Sparta's primary sort of government structure was were these two kings leading over a vast or a body of highly trained citizens in themselves ruling over the slaves, the Athenians prided themselves on democracy. Um, Athenian democracy is the first democracy that we get terribly excited about in the ancient world, although it very well might not have been the first ever democracy. It's just very well documented. Um, and Athenian democracy was, again, sort of the basis, at least the earliest basis for every democracy to date. Um, now, the way that it was actually conducted was a lot less exciting than the idea of Athenian democracy might seem at first. First of all, only citizens got to vote. 
And by citizens, I mean landowning men, which means basically anyone who was already rich. So the Athenian democracy is basically kind of a giant cover-up for Athenian plutocracy or something of that nature. We are not far removed from aristocracy here. Please don't get too excited about the Athenian accomplishments. Um, but I should emphasize that it was at least some step forward. If you were a citizen and lost your estate, you still had the right to vote in most cases, um, unless like you were disgraced or exiled, which would usually accompany the fact that you had lost your estate. Um, Athenian democracy was very straightforward. You can see like all these people here, this is actually supposedly another Trojan cycle story. They're voting to see whether Odysseus or Ajax gets awarded Achilles' armor. Spoiler, the other side of this Kylix is Ajax getting ready to commit suicide. Womp womp. Um, so once again, like this is sort of a structure that Athenian democracy was built on. Like all of these people would get together and they would have these special stones marked with the person. Um, and they would cast their vote, like, quite literally. They would cast a stone, um, and that would be the way that they voted. Um, and the Athenian democracy was responsible for basically all of the government's decisions. Like, if they wanted to build a new Acropolis on the, that fancy hill, Pericles had to get a whole bunch of people to agree with him. Um, if they wanted to build a fancy new navy to defend themselves from potentially aggressive Persian invaders, then everybody voted on it. And likewise, one of the best traditions in the Athenian democracy was every now and again they would just vote to get rid of someone. Like every year they'd pick somebody in the city who they were all sick of and they'd vote to exile them for no more reason than just they were annoying. Um, which honestly is kind of awesome and wonderful, even if some of the most like wonderful Greek writers and citizens ended up exiled in this particular way for various uh, periods of time. Um, suffice it to say that Athenian democracy is pretty rough and ready. Um, I should also emphasize that we do not have a sort of like separation here between the people doing the voting and the people who are doing the ruling. Like this is not representative democracy the way that you're going to see in Rome in the Senate. Um, these are literally the people deciding their own fates by like casting votes for themselves in the government body. Um, so this is pretty much one-to-one -one, except in so far as each of these landowning men basically functions as a representative of his household and estate. Um, in Athenian democracy, we very much see the sort of model of household management that was current in what Homer is writing about in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, the guy who is in charge is the guy in charge of everything. Odysseus is functionally the king of his own household. Everybody reports to him. He is absolute power as long as he is in his house. Um, his wife, his servants, his slaves, his family members, like his son, Telemachus, all of them basically report to him, and he represents them when he goes and does stuff like votes or acts or goes to war or whatever. This is the way that the Athenians interpreted that structure sort of handed down by Homer. Now, again, we can't point to Athenian democracy as directly a result of Homer, but it is obvious that they see it as being connected to Homer in this way, in the same way that the Spartans see their military heritage as being deeply connected to Homeric origins. Remember, Homer is current throughout the ancient Greek world, even if the city-states are separate and independent. The culture, to some degree the language, although the dialects in Sparta and Athens have very different sort of characters and as a result they'll spread very much separately from one another um 
nonetheless, both of them see Homer as the sort of foundation for their culture and the foundation for the way that they do things. Um, now, I should also emphasize, again, Athens, much as its democracy appeals to us, also kind of flubs things pretty regularly. Um, like, don't get me wrong, they, democracy is good, hooray for everybody getting a vote, but remember, it's just the landed males, it's just the rich people, it's, again, barely a step removed from aristocracy, and it's a boys' club only, no girls allowed, unlike the Spartans, who are at least a little forward-thinking as far as that's concerned. Um, now, the Athenians also own slaves, but again, this is more of an economic thing than, like, a conquest and, like horrible treatment thing the way that it is with the spartans um slaves come in a variety of different sort of styles and and uh and uh kinds some of them can be very sophisticated some of them less so the ones that are really sophisticated will get treated much more nicely than the ones who are basically just manual laborers it's complicated i don't want to get too deep into it we'll probably talk about it a little bit at least when we get into euripides um, but we'll come to that in its own time. For now, let's talk about the history here. In order to understand what's going on in the like literature and of the time, especially what we're talking about with Euripides and the Trojan women for next time, um, we have to talk about the big political events and the big military en encounters of this particular period, which means we've got to talk about the two big wars that are going to sort of dominate Athenian politics and the Athenian cultural identity and outlook um, throughout the classical period. First and foremost, we've got the Greco-Persian War. And the Greco-Persian War is the earlier of our two wars here. Um, it takes place in the early half of the 5th century BCE, so contemporaneous with Pericles. Um, this is where a lot of the older writers and thinkers of Athens are going to be sort of discussing and talking about. Um, they're going to remember this stuff pretty deeply, or they're going to remember it from their, you know, parents and grandparents talking about it. Um, importantly, though, this is a pretty major war, even by ancient standards. Like, we're talking about empire clashing here in a way that we simply haven't for most of this class. Um, remember, Troy was backwoods Hittite empire, and while the Mycenaeans seem to be fairly unified if and when they did a Trojan War, it doesn't seem to have nearly the scale that we sort of understood the Trojan War to be in Homer. Um, but here we see a legit world war going on. The Persian Empire over in the east has been suffering a lot of unrest due to the fact that they supposedly conquered all these, you know, quasi-Greek states, all those Greek colonies that we talked about in the Archaic period, and now they're grumpy and they want to hang out more with the Greeks and they want to hang out with the Persians. So the Persians are very much beating them up, bringing them into line, and getting very grumpy, especially with the Athenians, because they believe that it is this nonsense Athenian culture that is inspiring all these revolutions in the first place. So the Persians get mad and they start beating the crap out of the Greeks. Um, you'll notice that there are two separate campaigns here, namely Xerxes' expedition. Um, and then later we got the, the Artephernes expedition. Um, the key to sort of pay attention to here is that this should be an absolutely one-sided route. Remember, the Greeks are not unified. They're just a number of little individual city-states, no one of which could muster nearly the forces comparing to the Persians who were able to put hundreds of thousands of troops into the field, or at least so Herodotus tells us. 
the Persians are a huge empire. Like, much as we're only seeing the edge of Anatolia here, you've got to imagine the Persian Empire extends all the way into Babylon, um, all the way down into, sort of, Palestine. You know, it's a big empire. Like, this is on par with the Babylonians, and in fact, the Persians are the guys who kind of overthrew the Babylonians. Just ask, you know, like the latter part of the Old Testament about that sometime, if you're curious. The Cyrus the Great they're getting very excited about as the liberator of the Jews there is the same Cyrus who sort of conquers Babylon and takes over basically the entire ancient world, setting the stage for Xerxes in the years to come. So the Persians are the big heavy hitter in the ancient world at this point in time. Nobody can stand up to them, and the Greeks are this disunified group of random city-states, all with different identities and politics and attitudes. But this threat that the Persian Empire poses turns out to be enough to get the Greek city-states to come together. The Greeks form an alliance. Thebes and Sparta and Athens and the various other Greek uh, city-states throughout the Peloponnesian world, the rest of the Greek peninsula, and beyond, even into Sicily and Italy, they all decide that they are going to fight the Persians together. And as a consequence, we get the Spartans fighting the Persians at Thermopylae, preventing their advance in order to protect the Athenian retreat. Now, this is a pretty easy thing to overlook, given all of this pomp and circumstance surrounding the Battle of Thermopylae, but the Spartans lose at the Battle of Thermopylae. All 300 of those Spartans, or however many there were in fact there, Herodotus seems to neglect the fact that there are a whole bunch of, you know, Greek allies also hanging around, not just part, uh, Spartan soldiers. Um, the Persians definitely do overrun them, but the Spartans stall them, and that's the point. This allows the Athenians to regroup, get their navy together, and the Athenian navy is able to turn back the Persian navy, which, again, as we've talked about, if you don't have boats in ancient Greece, you're not getting anywhere very fast. So while the Persians do manage to get all the way down to Athens, sack the city, and pretty well destroy it, um, they are defeated at the Battle of Marathon, and they are pushed back by the Athenian navy, at which point they basically have to retreat and regroup. This is a big deal because again the persians have the biggest empire in the ancient world and this ragtag bunch of city-states managed to beat them off now this is a very herodotian kind of characterization of what's going on we'll get back to that as we go suffice it to say that this sort of reminds the Greeks that there is a sort of unified culture, unified language, unified set of presuppositions that they have, even in the face of all of their differences across different city-states. And a lot of Greek commentators are going to notice the fact that this is the first time that all the Greeks are on the same page since the Iliad, and there are probably a lot of other comparisons that could be made between, you know, all of the Greeks coming together to fight this potential threat from Anatolia. Like, it's not hard to see the connections between these two wars, the Iliad and the Greco-Persian War. But in case you're thinking to yourself, well, so now all the Greeks are friends and they're all united and this is where Greece comes from. No! No, it is not, because literally within 50 years or so, the Greeks are fighting each other in probably an even more destructive conflict, namely the Peloponnesian War. And the Peloponnesian War is literally just Athens versus Sparta. 
um, where the Greco-Persian War was a whole bunch of different Greek city-states getting together and pushing back, the, back this aggressor from the east, largely an aggressor that represented you know, a competing power structure and a sort of very contrary view of, of culture and identity, Athens and Sparta are not reconciled this easily. And as a consequence, by the end of the 5th century BC, they are very much fighting again. Um, and this one is a mess. Um, where, you know, the Greco-Persian War kind of turns out to be this, you know, inspiring tale of underdogs versus an aggressor. And, you know, we all just need to come together and we can do anything. Like, that's the stuff that you want to put on the inspirational posters. The Peloponnesian War is just mismanagement after mismanagement and error after error. And just bloody pointless battle after bloody pointless battle. Um... I know that the Spartans do in fact win, but even calling it that is kind of misleading because it really doesn't matter in the end. Athens maintains its identity and character. No actual territory is going to seriously change hands, although the Spartans are going to get considerably more influential. The Athenians, despite their superior navy, do not end up exploiting it due to a giant boondoggle where they go over to Sicily at the behest of this guy named Alcibiades, who is kind of the biggest asshole in the entire Greek world. He totally just sends them all on this boondoggle and then defects to the Spartans like a boss and then proceeds to help the Spartans sack the city of Athens before he himself is killed. Um, it's just a mess. An ugly, ugly, nasty mess. And while you could definitely look at the old map and we could emphasize, you know, here's where Thermopylae is and here's where... Uh, the Battle of Marathon took place, like, I'm not even going to try on this one. I don't know enough about the particular mechanics of the Peloponnesian War. It's kind of not interesting to me as much as, like, <clears throat> historians get really excited um, about various conflicts in the ancient world. What is more interesting to me is the effect that this has on the culture, what this means to the Athenians at the time, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. So much as this map might be very useful to a historian of military and endeavors and we might talk about like who actually won the war, for our purposes, let's leave it at this. Athens and Sparta teamed up against one big scary force, the Persians and the Greco-Persian War. The Athenians and the Spartans ended up fighting each other. P.S. The Spartans also definitely got some Persian allies to help out because the Spartans and the Persians are totally BFFs now. Um, and it basically destroyed a lot of the cool stuff that was going on in both Sparta and Athens. And neither is going to ever be the same, especially since they're both about to get taken over by another aggressor, from this time from the north, who is really going to change the face of the Greek world. But we'll get to that in its own time. For now, let's talk about the Athenian culture how these wars sort of influence the Athenian world, how it is reflected in the literature and the art of the time, and how they end up using Homer to talk about both the Greco-Persian War and the Peloponnesian War. Uh, but to talk about that, we need to talk about Athenian theater, which requires a little bit of preface in its own right. Um, so this is the theater of Dionysus under the Acropolis, if I am not mistaken. Um... It is an actual ancient theater, uh, probably rather eroded from its original form and also rather changed and renovated because 
like this is a tourist attraction now so they got to keep it safe and stuff um but it would in fact it does capture the dimensions and the rough outlook of a uh athenian theater in its own time you have these semicircular amphitheaters around a common stage um the structure of the land itself would have provided a natural sort of uh a natural way for the sound to travel and it would be easy for the uh, actors while projecting to get their voices up to even the highest ranks of the crowd. Um, it's actually pretty ingenious. Again, this is like the high point in Athenian culture and technology that includes architecture and under basic understanding of how sound travels and stuff like that. Um, and as I said before, the Athenian theater was itself a religious ceremony. Um, one of the things that we're going to talk about as we sort of walk our way through the various tragedians and stuff um, is that the tragedy is usually composed for a festival um, and it is composed in like respect to a god or goddess, usually Dionysus, or at least it used to be usually Dionysus. Now it's leaning more towards Apollo. Ask uh, Professor Nietzsche about that sometime. Um, the other thing to keep in mind here is that it is ceremonial like as we said about homer there is this very sort of blurry line between art and religion as far as the greeks are concerned um hesiod seems to have no problem invoking the muses and saying that he is giving us both historical and religious truth in the composition of his poetry the theogony and the works and days homer is probably doing something simple similar with the iliad and the odyssey this is the point, though, that that line starts to fray a bit. It's true that these tragedies are being performed in honor of Dionysus or in honor of one of the various gods, usually at a festival. Um, it is also true that they are competing for these honors. Like, not only do the tragedians compose their various tragedies, but then one of them will win the festival. Like, that's a thing that happens. Um, sort of like winning the Cannes Film Festival, I suppose. Like, was that really the point of this whole thing? Who knows? But at least it's a nice honor and everybody thinks that you're awesome. Um, so a lot of the time we'll talk about, like, which tragedians managed to beat each other out for various honors at various times. Um, but we should also stress that the tragedy is kind of simultaneously locked in its ritualistic form and also sort of keen especially at this particular moment in history to innovate to make changes um tragedy even aristotle notes is probably derived from the homeric epic things have changed gradually over the you know five six hundred years since homer wrote um, that we have gotten from one dude sort of singing the Homeric epic while somebody else plays music to several actors on a stage or a Greek chorus hanging around um, and the actual action being dramatized rather than just being narrated. Um, and Aristotle also notices that there are developments even in his own lifetime. Like even during the period that we're talking about here, we're going to see Greek tragedy change. Um, so typically, the way that a Greek tragedy will work is you will have the actors, probably two or three of them, maybe a few more hanging out on the stage here, as well as a Greek chorus, which is assembled around them and sort of functions as a part of the audience, but also sort of functions as its own separate entity. Um, the Greek chorus usually kind of voices what 
whatever the audience is supposed to be thinking or reacting at this point. So if something stressful is happening, they'll talk about how stressed out they are. Or if something tragic is happening, they'll be weeping and sad. Um, or if something silly is happening, then they'll laugh and they'll tell us how silly it is. Like, the Greek chorus tells us what to feel, what to think, what to believe. Um, and in case you're sitting there thinking, well, that doesn't sound artistic at all, shut up, because there are actually a lot of contemporary traditions that mirror this same sort of style. Uh, like, just ask about Wakaliwood someday, and you'll get a surprisingly similar thing to the Greek chorus and the narrator. Or if you check out any Bollywood or Tollywood movies, you'll find a pretty strong tradition of a kind of chorus um, surrogate hanging out in those productions as well. Um, this is actually surprisingly artistic and a component of many different artistic traditions around the world. Um, the developments that the Greeks seem to practice are the ones that bring the tragedy further and further away from the original epic tradition. So Aristotle posits that Aeschylus is the first person to have the you know, Greek actor on stage address somebody other than the Greek chorus. That originally it would be like an actor just talking to the chorus and going back and forth, epic style. Now we have multiple actors on a stage at a time talking to each other rather than talking just to the chorus, just to the audience. Um, further innovations will include getting fancy props and technology. Aristophanes is especially fond of using props for his comedies. Um, the famous deus ex machina, the god machine, which allows you to lower a god from the, or like from the uh, wings to the stage, is employed during this period. Um, additionally, you'll see that Euripides plays a lot with the sort of formulas of Greek tragedy and messes around with our expectations of, what, of who and what we should be listening to on the Greek stage. Um, but the way that the Greek tragedy tends to be structured as an actual play, again, you'll have a few actors hanging out on stage, but very little action. Um, like, every now and again, they'll talk about, you know, there's this battle going on far away from here, or for that matter, right next to us. And even at one point, it's suggested that, like, the audience is in fact the enemy army, which is the sort of thing that I really want to know more about and the random reference we got in our textbook certainly piques my interest as far as that's concerned. I'll just say right now, I'm not terribly familiar with Greek tragedy or comedy. I've read a fair number of plays by all of these different writers, but I have not studied them seriously um, the way that I've studied Homer here. So we are working with what we've got. Again, I'm kind of showing my uh, lack of experience. Once again, we are out of philosophy territory and I'm out of my wheelhouse. Um, but suffice it to say that the Greek structure of tragedy is very different from what we would look, what we would expect to see in our own time, or for that matter, what we would expect in Shakespeare's time. Again, you will have a couple of actors perform their scene, new revelations will come to light. This is usually the structure of Greek tragedy, and then the chorus will sing about it, and then they'll have another scene, and then the chorus will sing about that, and so on and so forth. Um, so, for example, Sophocles' Oedipus King, the King, or Oedipus Rex, um, famously regarded by Aristotle as the greatest of all the Greek tragedies and the most like paradigmatic example of the bunch, very little actual action takes place on the stage in Oedipus. 
Oedipus comes on stage, tells us all what the situation is, tells us what the problem is, goes off stage so the Greek chorus can bum around for a while, and for the rest of the play, it's literally a series of people coming onto the stage with Oedipus, telling him some new piece of information, usually about something that's happened a long time ago, Oedipus reacting to this new information, and then the Greek chorus reacting to Oedipus, reacting to this new information, and around and around we go. The key to Greek tragedy is that everyone knows how it's going to end. Much like the Iliad and the Odyssey, this is all stuck in time. No shocks are expected, no twists, no new developments. Most of the stories, at least in Greek tragedy, comedy is another thing, tragedy will emphasize the inevitability of these events. And the idea here is that you are not supposed to sympathize with the characters or, you know, feel tense about what is going to happen to them. You know what's going to happen to them, but that doesn't make them any less emotional. The goal here, as Aristotle point, or discusses it, is to come to a catharsis. And catharsis is the point where the emotions that you are feeling, either laughing in the case of comedy or suffering in the case of tragedy, become so peaked, so poignant, so powerful that you have no choice but to stand in your place and weep or like laugh to the point that you cannot bear it anymore. The whole point of Oedipus Rex is to get you closer and closer and closer, anticipating all the while the horrible revelation that Oedipus has slept with his mother and murdered his own father, at which point the full weight of Oedipus's actions falls on him and on the audience by extension. The audience suffers for Oedipus because they suffer the same way that Oedipus does. They recall their own stuck in fate and mortality. They recall their own mistakes and they weep for themselves as much as they weep for Oedipus. And I should emphasize this. The Greeks were not shy about showing emotion at these things. The Athenians were basically expected as part of the whole ceremony, as part of the whole ritual, to vent their emotions, either to laugh uproariously at, at Aristophanes or to weep uncontrollably at Sophocles. Um, this like as much as we usually talk about like the manly men of the Greek world, we should emphasize this did not preclude there being emotion. The Greeks did not have the same sort of attitude towards stoicism, at least not at this point in the classical world that we do today. Stoicism is very much a new invention for the Greeks after this particular period and something we'll associate much more with the Romans, but we'll come to that in a moment. So that's the way that the Greek tragedy works. It is, again, very different from the way that we tend to do things these days, very different from the sort of artistic conventions of the theater these days, but it is very ritualized, very formalized, and yet subject to a great deal of innovation, especially at this 100-year period. So let's talk about the very beginning of Greek tragedy, at least as we have it, and that means Aeschylus. Um, Aeschylus is the earliest of our Greek tragedians, or at least the earliest of the surviving Greek tragedians, which is why he is very much called the father of Greek tragedy. Um, now, we should emphasize that doesn't mean that he is the earliest writer of tragedy. Again, in all likelihood, this is a long-standing tradition that has been around for a long time, probably a gradual stage-by-stage -stage development from the original epic in its own right, although that is not to say that the epic has disappeared. There are still recitations of Homer, even in the classical Greek world. Um, just that Aeschylus is sort of the first 
quote, modern Greek tragedian. Um, Aristotle points to him as being the father of Greek tragedy, as all contemporary Greek tragedy sort of flowing through him, although he does refer to earlier tragedians. He's also, again, the first one that we have anything of. There may have been tragedians beforehand, but either they didn't write their stuff down, or they did and it is lost for whatever reason. Um, Aeschylus is the first tragedian that Aristotle proposes to preserve, and that's a, probably a lot of the reason why he got preserved. Um, now, supposedly he composed something like 90 plays, and if this is shocking to you, believe it or not, this is going to be pretty normal. Like, this is actually on the low end as far as compositions are concerned when we get into other tragedians. Um, so, yeah, take that as you see fit. Of these 90 plays, though, only seven survive. Um, all the rest have been lost. Many are fragmentary, like we have quotes from them, or people write about them, and they include chunks of them in their writing about them, but again, we cannot reconstruct them because they're so fragmentary, there's so little left. Um, so, again, for our purposes, there are really only seven that we can talk about, seven that we can compare to Homer. Um, and again, in our one reading for today, the one about Homer and Greek literature by Richard Hunter, you'll notice that he mentions all of these various writers and connects them to Homer in various ways. His writing there is much more sophisticated than mine, so on the one hand I recognize if this was a slog to get through because you didn't know who any of these people were and hadn't read any of these plays. Keep this in mind as a sort of key to understanding his various references there. Um, so, of the, his surviving plays, notable inclusions are The Persians, which, P.S., all of the plays that we've been talking about here have been typically on mythological subjects. Um, again, stuff from the Iliad, stuff from the Odyssey, stuff from the other myths surrounding these, stuff from other epic poems, stuff from the Trojan Cycle, other things of that nature. The fact that he's writing on the Persians means that he's writing about the Greco-Persian War and he's writing about, you know, stuff that happened in his own lifetime. Um, this apparently happened kind of frequently. Like, certainly it is rarer to hear about a contemporary subject than it is to hear about mythological and legendary subjects. Um, but apparently it does happen and numerous other playwrights have contemporary compositions. Um, Aeschylus is, though, uh, is the only one that we have. The Persians is the only tragedy on a contemporary subject that has survived to the present day, um, and worth mentioning on that very front by itself. Um, he also wrote The Seven Against Thebes, which refers to the big seven heroes, part of the Thebiad, uh, who like addressed and attacked Thebes. Um, it's a whole thing, again, in the epic tradition and in the mythological tradition, though I'm not going to get into that story because I don't know it terribly well, and it is incredibly elaborate and involved. Um, so, again, we'll just leave that as reference that he is once again drawing from the other great epic traditions in ancient Greece. Um, we should also definitely point out the Arestia cycle. These are probably the plays that Aeschylus is most famous for now, and the ones that are most directly connected to the Homeric tradition, at least insofar as the surviving plays are concerned. Um, this is also the first instance of a trilogy in the history of world literature, so far as we know, like a strict, legit trilogy. Um, almost certainly the first trilogy in the Greek playwright world at the very least i'm not entirely sure if at this point we have like other world traditions with trilogies um suffice it to say if you hate the star wars trilogy you can blame aeschylus at least partially for this um because it no doubt derives in some way 
Um, this is the Orestia cycle. You'll remember that Orestes is Agamemnon's son, the one who, you know, avenges the death of Agamemnon after Agamemnon is murdered by Clytemnestra. Um, so this starts with the actual murder of Agamemnon by Clytemnestra and the Agamemnon, and then the libation bearers and the Eumenides sort of follows Orestes' exciting activities afterwards. I was tempted to have us read the Agamemnon for this class, but Aeschylus is really dry by contemporary standards, um, and there wasn't quite as much that I could draw from Homer there. Um, again, one of the things that you'll notice from the little bit that I've read of Aeschylus is that he stays pretty slavishly close to the original form of the myths and really does only dramatize them. Like, he is very much a product of the older culture, the older traditions. Um, he is an innovation insofar as he is dramatizing them in a way that, you know, they simply hadn't been before, but he's more interested in the mechanics of the theater than actual new storytelling methods. That's something that we're going to find more in Sophocles and Euripides, but we'll get to that in its own right. Um, lastly, Aeschylus is attributed with the writing of Prometheus Bound, the story of Prometheus, the guy who brought fire from heaven and gave it to human beings in order to give them some sort of power against the gods. This one, though, is heavily disputed. It's not entirely sure whether Aeschylus actually wrote this or this is somebody else's play or if it is a much later work. Again, a lot of these come from, you know, as much as we do have way more information about the classical world than we do about the archaic world, there are still a lot of gaps in our knowledge and a lot of missing pieces to our total picture of the Athenian literary world. Again, 83 plays of Aeschylus are gone, so yeah, like, we still only have a fraction of what the Athenians produced, it's just that fraction is still way more than literally everything else we've talked about put together. Um, but let's move on. After Aeschylus and his fairly rigorous, fairly mythologically based attitude, we get Sophocles. And Sophocles, as I said, like Aristotle sees him as the best of the tragedians. Um, so far, so much so that like apparently he competed in something like 30 tragedy competitions and won 24 of them. And the other six, he came in second. Um, Sophocles is unparalleled as far as the Greeks are concerned. Now, contemporary readers often point to, you know, the greatness of Sophocles, and he is really awesome. Like, go ahead and read the Oedipus Cycle. You'll probably be impressed. It certainly holds up even after, you know, 2,500 years. Um, but nonetheless, the Greeks love this guy where we tend to think that there was more merit for someone like Euripides or some of the other writers that we've encountered. Um, Sophocles, however, represents sort of the apotheosis of the tragedy form as it was sort of innovated by Aeschylus. If Aeschylus sort of changed the tragedy in certain mechanical ways, now we have multiple characters speaking to each other, now the action is dramatized, but we're not going to move very far away from the original interpretation of these myths, Sophocles can take those same myths and without changing the structure or without changing the, the like events of those myths, turn them into something truly poignant and powerful. He is absolutely excellent at getting at that catharsis that Aristotle is talking about, causing everybody to weep in the aisles. Um, which probably means that Aristotle just really liked Sophocles and was totally happy to base his judgment of the tragedy on the way that Sophocles was conducting it, 
Remember, these rules are not set in stone until after these tragedians have competed and after Aristotle is sort of weighing in on the po in the poetics uh, many decades afterwards. But Sophocles is universally recognized by the Greeks as being awesome. Um, now, supposedly he composed like 120 or more plays. And again, as was the case with Aeschylus, we have seven. Um, many fragments, many quotes. Again, many people thought that these were awesome, but nonetheless, seven is what we've got. Um, which may be surprising, because remember, if, Arist if like Aristotle's seal of, of approval is what guarantees you longevity, you know, Aristotle saying that Homer was awesome, but the other epics were kind of crappy, may very well be a contributing factor to why Homer survived. This doesn't seem to be huge evidence that Aristotle was taken all that seriously. Like, Aristotle's love of Sophocles apparently did not secure for Sophocles the, you know, immortality of most of his plays in a way that Homer's immortality was assured. Um, there are other factors here, in short, which just, if anything, seems to lend more credence to the fact that Homer really is unique and awesome among the epic writers, um, where even Sophocles could not manage to distinguish himself enough to get record or recorded for all time in the way that Homer did. Um, now, of these plays, we should definitely mention, first off, the Ajax, because, again, naturally, we have a direct Homeric subject being portrayed here by Sophocles, namely the suicide of Ajax. Um, so, you know, again, we should emphasize Sophocles is taking something that is traditionally from the epic form or from some other mythological form, turning it into tragedy and turning it into this very poignant, very perfected, very sort of polished kind of tragedy um we also have the electra which i'm not going to talk especially about although we should notice that talking about women's uh situations and characters is going to increasingly become a part of the tragic world um the philoctetes another homeric subject remember that philoctetes is the guy who like gets shot early on in the whole trojan business and gets like left on an island to rot for most of the trojan war until people like come back for him because they apparently need him and his bow in order to win the trojan war um so again we have another direct homeric reference here and importantly we have the oedipus cycle which is undoubtedly the most famous of sophocles's compositions the stuff that you are most likely to have encountered before coming to this class um and the oedipus cycle is straight out of the theban cycle um, that epic cycle about Thebes especially would have focused on Oedipus and his adventures. Um, so Sophocles writing the story of Oedipus's self-discovery in Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and then Antigone, again, female characters, note that. Um, this is just another indication of how important that Theban cycle would have been and gives us some pretty good evidence that there was, in fact, a strong epic tradition there as well. Um, again, Oedipus Rex is sort of like the paradigmatic example. Even Aristotle points this out, so it's good that we have it. Um, probably a major component to why it has survived as long as it has. Again, Sophocles is not doing anything terribly revolutionary here, but he is perfecting the form in its current state. He is the Steven Spielberg of the, you know, ancient Greek tragic world. He is not doing anything shockingly innovative, but he is really, really good at the fundamentals and the basics and at making you feel what his characters are feeling at any given moment. Which contrasts neatly against Euripides. 
Euripides is the weirdo of the bunch. He is the youngest of our three surviving Greek tragedians. He is, in some ways, the best preserved of the surviving Greek tragedians, but he was very much not terribly recognized in his own time, largely because he made a lot of changes to the formula. Um, Euripides was very content to manipulate the way that these myths were interpreted on a storytelling standpoint as well as a structural standpoint, and he was very happy to use the existing mythic structure to make commentary about the contemporary world. Now, to some degree, all these tragedians are likely doing that. Remember, the Peloponnesian War is going on, as many of these writers are writing. It is very likely that they would particularly choose certain mythic subjects in order to inform the politics of the day and to sort of weigh in on everything else that was going on. But Euripides is the least ashamed of this. He very unabashedly is willing to turn his tragedies and his mythic subjects into political commentary for the day, um, which we will definitely see in the Trojan Women. Now, supposedly, Euripides, like the others, composed something like 95 plays. 19 of them survive, compared to, like, the seven we've seen from Sophocles and um, from Aeschylus, which may very well be due to the fact that Euripides was associated with the Platonic tradition. We'll probably talk about that more when we get to Plato. Um, now, admittedly, one of those we're not sure about, Rhesus, like, we're not sure if Euripides actually wrote that one, but suffice it to say, the other 18 are pretty well attested. Um, these include the Medea, perhaps his most famous play, which is a retelling of the Jason and Medea story in tragedy form, but, very shockingly, it takes the side of Medea and presents Jason as kind of an asshole, and the child-murdering Medea as sympathetic and understandable. Where many of our playwrights have experimented with female voices at various times, like take Aeschylus sort of voicing Clytemnestra's hatred of her husband in, honestly, some fairly lackluster ways, Euripides is going out of his way to totally upend the usual interpretation of Jason and the Argonauts in favor of a much more compassionate view towards women and their situation. And you'll see that that comes up a lot in Euripides' most famous plays. For example, one of his others is the Andromache, which very much examines the life of Andromache, especially in the wake of Hector's death, and also the Trojan women, which we are in fact going to read in this class. Arguably, Euripides has a number of plays that work on roughly the same format. Andromache, the Trojan women, and the Hecuba all seem to be in this territory of women of Troy getting totally screwed over by Greek forces, and Euripides going out of his way to sympathize and identify with them. Something which was, at its own time, a little unpopular in all likelihood. Many of the plays about Troy tended to be really suspicious of the Trojans and even more hostile to the Trojan attitude than Homer was. Homer doesn't seem to have much of a bias as far as who's in the right Greek or, Tro or Trojan. You know, again, the story very much seems to paint Hector as the most honorable of the major uh, heroes in the play, and it even ends very tragically with the death of Hector and this sort of suspicion that, the, that Troy will follow soon. Euripides, if anything, is even more sympathetic to the Trojans, and that's in the wake of the fact that all of these playwrights and all of these historians have increasingly been identifying Troy with, as they call him, Phrygia, i.e. the Persians. You know, that nasty, horrible, tyrannical empire that we just beat in that last war. Like, this is roughly tantamount to Euripides, you know, 
talking about the Russians of the Cold War as being sympathetic and, you know, being some something that we should, like, be compassionate towards. Probably part of the reason that Euripides kept getting routinely beaten, beaten by Sophocles in the tragedy competitions is because he was probably pretty unpopular and may even have been accused of being treasonous at certain points in time. But we'll get to that as well. We should also mention the Cyclops. Uh, as you would probably suggest, this is a tragedy from the perspective of Polyphemus, the Cyclops from the Odyssey. So yet another direct Homeric reference, but also a totally new spin on the Homeric character. Um, now this is an example of a satyr play, which is apparently a pretty well-documented phenomenon in Greek uh, theatrical circles i.e. it is sort of getting into the mind of a monster in some very fairly deliberate ways and while tragic it also kind of serves as something of a parody in some ways um but again i'm not i'm definitely not qualified to talk more about the way that the savior uh play is, functions definitely refer to the article in the textbook by uh richard hunter about more examination of like the way that the cyclops works and how it compares to to homer um now we can't talk about the tragedians without also getting into the comedies here um so let's talk about at least a little bit aristophanes um aristophanes is like the one major surviving comedian from this point and when i say comedian like yes that is where the word comes from you know writer of comedy is a comedian in the same way that writer of tragedy is a tragedian um so aristophanes is every bit as prolific as the tragedians although his attitude is very very different um aristotle calls him the father of comedy and while aristotle does seem to poo poo comedy pretty hard um, like for Aristotle, tragedy is sort of the pinnacle of the theatrical form and comedy is much lower and more vulgar by contrast. Probably because Aristophanes had no qualms about like using poop jokes and just being uh, like using fart jokes and stuff throughout his plays, which from what I understand are totally hilarious. Although I have to confess, I've never actually read Aristophanes. I know I'm going to. It's a huge gaping hole in my knowledge. Um, and everything I've heard is that he's just wonderful and delightful to read. Um, suffice it to say, we're getting there, but there's only so much time that one has to prepare for this class. And I would have rather spent it boning up on Homer, who is in fact the primary focus of the class, than getting all of my Greek, uh, Greek theatrical reading out of the way. Um, so suffice it to say, Aristophanes is almost universally recognized as the best comedian in the classical Athenic, or Athenian world. Um, he supposedly comp composed a mere 40 plays compared to our 120 of all these tragedians. You know, for comedy apparently being the lower form, you'll notice that it's apparently way harder to write than it is tragedy. And Aristophanes even has a couple of quotes to that effect because Aristophanes was fairly famous famously like condemned by the demos at one point because they thought that his play the babylonians was again treacherous or treasonous um and sophocles himself would go on to parody that group but we'll get there um of his 40 though 11 survive whole so perhaps that's a pretty good indication that while you know aristophanes may have composed way fewer plays than all the rest of the other tragedians he managed to get a much higher proportion of his to survive which is actually kind of funny when you think about it, both in the, like, comic, because Aristophanes sense, 
but also in the sense that maybe like he was in fact a way better playwright than anyone gave him credit for especially because I've seen that multiple of his plays are still being performed today. Um, they're kind of wonderful. Um, among his surviving plays, we have The Frogs, in which Dionysus goes into Hades to rescue Euripides from death because all the other tragic writers suck. Like, this is the sort of material that Aristophanes is frequently working with, and Aristophanes is very happy to talk about contemporary subjects in his writing. Like, the tragedies tend to focus on historical distance, tend to emphasize mythic uh, stories that have happened way back in the past. Aristophanes will frequently include among his cast people who are alive today, people who are major public figures, and he will satirize them just as well as everybody else. So keep that in mind. Like, Aristophanes is pretty daring in his subject choice and in the way that he sort of picks what he's going to write about and the way that he writes about them as well. His suggestion in The Frogs is that Greek tragedy has sucked since Euripides and the only way that Dionysus could possibly get better, like Dionysus is so upset because all of his, all the tragedies devoted to him are lousy that he decides that just forget it, he's going to get Euripides himself and bring him back because all the contemporary tragedians are lousy. Um, we also got The Wasps in which Aristophanes very much satirizes the Athenian demos, largely taking pot shots at all those people who criticized the Babylonians. Like, again, when they were condemning him, he w was very grumpy about that. So, as is typically the case, when a comedian starts, you know, getting, like, criticized from the audience, that becomes a part of the art. Um, so the Wasps is all about demagoguery and how the Athenian core can totally get manipulated and how basically they're a bunch of idiots and assholes, um, whether intentional or unintentional, subtle or unsubtle. Um, my personal favorite is The Clouds. I think I have actually read this one, so I lied when I said that I hadn't read any Aristophanes. Um, the Clouds is where he satirizes philosophy. And it's all these philosophers basically debating and trying to come to all these answers about the big questions of the universe and coming to absolutely nothing. And then Socrates shows up via the deus ex machina, you know, the way that the gods usually arrive to solve all of everybody's problems. And then he just confuses everything more. So the clouds is just very much a takedown of the entire philosophical tradition at this point, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, also the birds, which is apparently a big favorite of Aristophanes fans, and it's literally about birds. Like, I don't know what the deal is. I don't know why everybody's so excited about the bird play. Apparently it is hilarious, though, so there's that. Um, so suffice it to say, the Greeks have a really robust literary and theatrical world, one that is very much aware of itself, and as a result, changing and innovating as it goes. Whether it's, you know, Sophocles perfecting the model that Aeschylus started, or Euripides sort of using the tragi tragic model to undermine the original assumptions about the culture and the, the uh, interpretation of the myths thus far, or Aristophanes just straight up satirizing and lampooning public figures of the time. Like, this is a pretty rich scene as these things go. And the fact that a lot of these survive is a testament to how awesome they actually are. I mean, many of these plays are read in high school classes, in college classes, you name them. They're not just purely the subject matter of, you know, stuffy old academics sitting in their offices trying to figure out how the Greek culture worked. They are still entertaining today, still powerful and meaningful. Um, but we do need to talk about Greek philosophy. Like, Aristophanes brought it up, now we can't very well let it down. 
Um, I could very much do multiple whole lectures on just Greek philosophy and have if you want to check my backlog, but we're going to try and keep it brief today. What I really want to emphasize here is, again, that sort of indebtedness to Homer. Um, just as the tragedians seem to be very conscious, very aware of their indebtedness to Homer, very much grappling with their own relationship to Homer, whether it's Sophocles trying to sort of perfect Homer for a new medium, or Euripides trying to sort of like draw out things from Homer that others have largely ignored or de-emphasized, philosophy has a really troubled relationship with Homer. Um, so this is the beginning of Greek philosophy proper in many respects. There are many philosophers, so to speak, uh, before Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, but for the most part, they are not nearly as well preserved, um, and they haven't written ideas that have lasted or been, like, uh, preserved nearly as well or as long as these three major guys. Like, ask me about Heraclitus someday, you'll get a long diatribe in its own right. Um, but for our purposes, we can focus predominantly on these three because they definitely had the most uh, cultural impact. Socrates was the earliest of our writers. He's the guy who's bumming around during the Peloponnesian War especially. Um, and in fact, his death conveniently coincides with the end of the Peloponnesian War because he is the guy who was teaching er er Alcibiades how to be a person. Um, like, there were, in fact, a lot of teachers in the golden age of Greek classical culture, largely because all those bigwigs in the demos figured out that the best way to get their stuff done in the, the demos, the best way to get their ideas elected into law, was to be really persuasive and therefore silver-tongued, in a sense. So all these teachers showed up promising to teach young men how to speak grandly and to do oratory. Socrates was kind of not one of those. Socrates very much seemed to hold himself as different from the sophists uh, like Gorgias and others who's proposed to be able to teach these young men and turn them into silver-tongued diplomats. Um, Socrates instead was kind of a public nuisance. He wandered around and basically asked all these supposed teachers how smart they really were and apparently was quite a pain in the but in this process. Um, but he also attracted a number of students in his own right and didn't charge them, or at least so Plato tells us. And one of those students was Alcibiades. So when Alcibiades ended up doing his big switch over to the Spartan side, the Athenians got so mad that they executed Socrates in his stead. Um, there also might have been some actual treason plotting with Alcibiades. History is unclear on the subject. It depends on whether you trust Plato or various non-platonic Greek writers more. I'm not going to try and weigh in on this one. Suffice it to say, Socrates definitely was this important philosopher. He supposedly wrote a number of dialogues, all of which were lost. Um, he very much changed the way that Greek knowledge making and knowledge finding was going on, especially because his other student, Plato, very much took on his mantle after Socrates' death and was also very annoyed with the Greeks for condemning this, what he thought was an innocent man. So Plato wrote a number of dialogues, many of which survive to this day and are sort of considered the foundation of the entire business of Western philosophy. Ask me about them someday and you will get an entire class's worth of lectures, like an entire semester or two. Um, suffice it to say that Plato had a really tricky relationship with literally everyone around him. 
Um, on the one hand, he was very frustrated with the Greek city, like the Athenian leaders, because they had killed his mentor Socrates. Um, he was especially grumpy with the leadership at the time, now that the Spartans are sort of mucking about in Athenian politics. Um, and what's more, Plato also tends to think that the Greek mythological tradition is flawed as well. Um, much though as Plato is willing to quote Homer for his own purposes, Socrates in the Apology, um, as written by Plato, compares himself to Achilles on several occasions as far as like persecuted man who has done nothing wrong. Uh, but Plato also very explicitly says that Homer is bad news for teaching. Um, in the Republic especially, like he's building this perfect society based on what he has observed of human nature and the way that humans conduct each other. Um, and he mentions, you know, we have to be really careful about the way that we teach our kids because that's how they learn morality, that's how they learn civic virtue, and therefore we cannot teach them Homer because in Homer all the gods are terrible, he's not wrong, and we can't, like, let them think that Zeus is bad or that Athena is bad or that any of the gods are bad. Um, therefore Homer is a liar, therefore Homer is bad news, therefore we should stop teaching Homer immediately. End of diatribe. Now, on the one hand, we should emphasize that the Greek dialogue is very much an art form in its own right, and it is very dependent on the big speechifying of Homer throughout the epic tradition. Um, it's very likely that Plato is borrowing from Homeric style, even as he co uh, sort of condemns Homeric substance. Um, but at the same time, Plato gives us an insight into the way that the Greeks are using Homer at this time. Like, as much as we can frequently find allusions and connections throughout all these tragedies and comedies and various writers and Greek poetry, as much as we can find all these connections to Homer in these writings, Plato very clearly uh, shows to us that, like, the Greeks are relying on Homer for basically everything at this point in time. He is the foundation of the entire literary canon, sure, but he is also how you teach morality, how you teach civic virtue, how you teach children to behave like adults. Um, some people are even going to criticize, like Plato himself criticizes, the fact that a lot of young men are being trained in Homeric combat, like one-on-one -on -one duels like you see throughout the Iliad, and Plato's like, dude, that's not helpful in an actual battle situation. Like, as much as it's nice when it happens with Homer, when Hector goes out and is like, hey, Ajax, want to fight me? And then, like, everybody sits down, and then Hector and Ajax fight. Like, that's not how war works. Not in Plato's experience, not in Socrates' experience, and they both saw wartime. Like, Plato is very much emphasizing that we need to be very careful about how we deal with Homer. We cannot take him as this sort of one-size-fits-all perfect instruction manual for every part of Greek life. Um, which means there are people in Plato's time taking Homer's Iliad and Odyssey as a one-size-fits-all instruction manual for every aspect of Greek life. In the same way that the Spartans seem to notice the whole, you know, honor and warfare thing without paying attention to the fact that Homer seems ultimately pretty like dim on the subject of is war good like again Homer consistently throughout the Iliad emphasizes how the negative consequences of warfare um, as much as people are reading Homer selectively either for like certain stylistic elements or certain tragic elements Plato was emphasizing we got to be careful we cannot just allow our children to swallow this stuff 
without explanation. Aristotle is the one who will sort of actually do the direct commentary, though. Um, Plato does have his negative things to say about Homer, and that is pretty damn direct. It's pretty hard to confuse what he has to say there. Um, but Aristotle and his poetics will legitimately and literally just tell you straight out. Um, this is, you know, the best tragedian, namely Sophocles. This is the particular style of Euripidean tragedy. And for that matter, he very much holds Homer up as the epic, the form from which all of these other things sort of follow. Um, where Aristotle doesn't really have a category of the epic as separate from tragedy and comedy, he notes, as again, our writer in the, the textbook mentions, that Homer is very much the father of all of these forms. He informs all of these other writers. So Homer is kind of bigger than genre for Aristotle. And while Aristotle is kind of ambivalent about the actual, like, uh, cultural aesthetic value of Homer, he doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of alternatives to compare him to, as I recall. It's been a while since I've read the poetics. Um, Aristotle does sort of secure a lot of these writers in their position as the most important tragedian. And Aristotle's sort of commentary on these writers does kind of stand practically as objectivity in the generations to come. When Aristotle says Sophocles is the best tragedian, for literally centuries, people are just going to assume that he's right and that this is an objective statement on Aristotle's part. Um, so for all of the criticism that a lot of these philosophers have, at the end of the day, even Aristotle is willing to concede that most of his morality, most of his, his ethics derives from Homeric standards. Um, when we said that Homer informed all of these tragedians and comedians, we kind of emphasized that, like, it's a stylistic thing, it's a genre thing, but it's a values and morality thing as well, as Aristotle and Plato will no doubt show you. Now, we should emphasize that Plato, along with Euripides and to some degree Aristotle, represents a kind of subversive element in this Greek culture, um, which is possibly why Socrates was condemned. It's possibly why Euripides is kind of not getting the recognition that he deserves, we think. It is entirely possible that Plato, Aristotle, Euripides, and many of the other thinkers at this sort of second half of the, the classical period are in fact trying to transform Greek culture into something else. Throwing away some of the old values and trying to adopt and uh, circumscribe new values. Um, so there is change in the wind here. But before we get on to what happens in Aristotle's day and how the Greek world really gets thrown for a loop, we need to talk about the historians. Because as much as there are all of these important elements in Homer, from Homer in these literary works, Homer is also very much the foundation of literally the study of history itself. Um, like I said before, the lines between religion and literature are very blurry in, Hom in Homer's day. So likewise, the lines between literature, religion, and history are blurry in Homer's day. The Iliad is presented not just as a ritual text to be, you know, performed in respect of the gods, not just as a beautiful poem, the beautiful imagery of which is worth something on its own merits, but it is also presented as an account of the Trojan War from someone who would know, i.e. the muses who were there. The Greek historians, though, represent a move away from this. 
Um, first Herodotus, pictured here on the left, and then Thucydides, pictured here on the right. Both of them are sort of questioning the way that history is conducted, doing a lot to sort of distance and distance themselves from Homer's, you know, storytelling and romanticism, and instead demythologizing the way that history is produced. Now, these represent two distinct steps in this process as well. Like Herodotus, he is the one who is telling the story of the Greco-Persian War, and he basically does so by going around and asking people who were there, or asking people who knew someone who was there, or asking someone who was the grandkid of someone who knew somebody who was there, getting whatever information he can, and just reporting it all. Like, no question about sources, no doubts about where the information is coming from, just everything I heard goes on the page, everything turns out to be part of my histories. By contrast, Thucydides over here, writing about the Peloponnesian War, was in fact there and did in fact fight in it and did in fact record it as it was going on to some degree. Um, he was also considerably more rigorous about his sources than Herodotus was. He needed to corroborate them. Um, that doesn't change the fact that he has many examples of speeches that are clearly romanticized and there were no potential, you know, witnesses there who would have been alive at the time, so he's clearly taking quite a bit of artistic license. Nonetheless, Thucydides is moving the study of history forward. But importantly, just as Homer gave us this story about a united Greek nation, and as much as that historical account, no matter how much of it is true and how much of it is false, ultimately contributes to a view of Greece by the Greeks that sees them as the common uh, sort of inheritors of this common Greek Mycenaean culture, so does Herodotus contribute to much the same idea. Herodotus's story of the Greco-Persian War is a no-accounts, totally biased account of the good and noble Greeks fighting against those awful, tyrannical Persians, who, P.S., were not nearly as awful and tyrannical as they seemed. Ask them what their policy about slavery is, and you'll get a very egalitarian response compared to, say, the Spartans and their helots. Um, but Herodotus's myth here, the fact that Herodotus paints this story the way that I painted it earlier as a ragtag group of underdog Greeks getting together and overcoming impossible odds by coming together as a nation. This sticks. And this is the way that people are going to interpret this conf conflict for many centuries to come. This is how many thinkers, many historians, many writers, many philosophers are going to view the Greek identity to some respect. And perhaps the best example of this is, in fact, in Greek historical practice itself. Namely, when Alexander the Great comes down from Macedon, takes over the entirety of the Greek world, and then proceeds to go out and take over the rest of the ancient world, all the way as far east as the Indus River, he does so with this myth in mind. With this idea of Greek identity inherited from Herodotus, from Homer, going on in his mind. So he brings Greek culture everywhere, down to Egypt and all the way to Tunisia, all the way east through Persia and the Persian Empire, all the way to the Indus River. Alexander the Great is going to bring this story of how the Greeks are this one common unified heritage, this one common culture, and he's going to carry that culture with him and institute it everywhere that he goes. 
it's said that Alexander the Great literally carries a copy of the Iliad and carries it under his pillow when he goes to bed at night. So literally everywhere that you see on this map was a place where the Iliad rested at one point. And Alexander the Great emphasized that this was the way that humans were supposed to behave. This is what Greek culture is supposed to look like, and Greek culture is the most superior culture you can tell because they just conquered the world. Um, all that to say, Alexander the Great's whole project here ultimately results in something truly unique on the world stage up until this point, this process that we call Hellenism i.e. the entire ancient world, which up until now has been a group of different cities, states, empires, nations, cultures, identities, languages, all bumping up and getting in each other's way, trading with each other as is convenient, but that's it. Now it is all unified under one single banner, Alexander's and the Greek banner. This is the culture that Alexander brings everywhere. Now the entire ancient world speaks Greek, it trades with each other, it operates under a single bureaucratic structure, and while Alexander is going to die really fast and then leave the empire to his generals, which is why it's colored the way that it is, each one of these different colors represents a different general sort of control, um, each of these attitudes is unified by this common culture, this common ancestry, this common heritage, and that heritage is rooted in Homer. The Iliad and the Odyssey are the foundation of this entire inherited culture. And from here on out, the entire world speaks Homer. They don't necessarily speak the exact Greek of Homer, but they have inherited the cultural responsibility of bearing Homer and keeping it in its way. Like, we keep talking about, you know, why did this survive and why did this not survive? At least part of the reason that Homer has survived, why it has been enshrined the way that it has, is because Alexander loved this book. And everywhere that he went, he founded cities, named them after himself, Alexandria, 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 and one after his horse, Bucephalus. Um, and he would make libraries and put Homer there, as well as the stuff that he considered important. Now, the reason why we keep emphasizing why Aristotle is an important part of this process is because Aristotle was along for the ride and Aristotle was definitely teaching Alexander everything that he knows. But nonetheless, it's clear that Alexander, what he valued stuck around. And the fact that he valued Greek culture meant that Greek culture was going to become the foundation of the entire Western world. This is why we're talking about Greek now instead of Hindu culture, or African culture, or Egyptian culture, or any number of other things. This is why when we talk about mythology, the first thing you imagine is Zeus, and not Odin, or Brahma, or Isis. Um, Greek culture gets enshrined in a vast area of the world, the area of the world that is going to very much grow up to be our world. Largely because Alexander the Great took it over and made them read Homer. And on some level, yeah, Homer is awesome, and Homer is a really great epic, and it is artistically superior to many other epics that you may encounter in your reading or whatever. But it kind of doesn't matter, because Alexander won, and history is written by the victors, as well as culture. Now, this 
is obviously super complicated. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of culture that we're very much skipping over here. Um, and we are not going to come back to this whole discussion of history and culture until after we talk about the Trojan women, which means we're not going to talk about it until we get to the Roman Empire, which will have its own lecture and be the last of our big history lectures. Um, but suffice it to say, when we talk about the legacy of Homer, this is really ground zero for Homer going from being a national epic, sort of reinforcing national identity, to a world epic that many, many cultures see as being foundational to their identity. This is where Greece goes from being this tiny backwater series of islands and peninsulas to the foundation of the entire world's outlook and perspective. Um, the ancient world is profoundly transformed by this process, profoundly transformed by Alexander's march to the Indus River because of the way that it changes their governments and their landscape and the way that the armies are defeated and so on, but also because now they all share in culture. This is the first step to global culture in any real respect, at least here in the West. Um, so all of the, what we've talked about today, all of the various Greek takes on Homer is in many ways just prelude for Homer going viral. Um, all of these tragedians and comedians and historians writing about Homer, modifying Homer, changing certain aspects of Homer, interpreting Homer in different ways, making Homer, you know, the understanding of their military or making Homer the understanding of their culture. At the end of the day, now everybody has Homer. Now everybody agrees that Homer is important. And that means that Homer is going to be really important in places that it didn't used to be, where it used to be very unusual or where they'd never heard of him before. This is going to change a lot. So from here on out, we're going to talk about, again, this legacy. Now that everyone reads Homer, now that everyone knows Homer, what do they do with him? How do they interpret this? How does Homer factor into their own identity? How do they make Homer factor into their own identity? How do the identities of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Trojans turn out to inform everything about a given culture's identity, about their lineage, about their heritage, about their divine right to rule in some cases? That's what we're going to track. How will it change literature? How will it change culture? How will it change personal identity and morality? That's what we're going to track here. On some level, we are seeing the we are looking at the Greeks because it's a great sort of place to see this process at work. We can see in real time the way that it's changing literature, changing values, changing the study of history, all that sort of thing. But it's going to go on and do much more than that. And I look forward to talking to you about that soon.